Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Cheryl Hemp, and I am a member of this congregation. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. And a special thanks to our wonderful choir directed by Margaret. Since 1870, UU has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or Instagram for updates. And a couple of announcements. Today will be a community focus collection, and I'll describe more about that later. In addition, if you have information or articles for the February circuit writer, please send it to Donica by Thursday, January 20th. And other announcements for the church are on the yellow insert in your program. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise in spirit or body for our opening hymn in the Teal Book, number 1007, There's a River Flowing in My Soul. Please remain standing and join me in reciting the congregation's affirmation. You'll find the words in your order of worship. I begin, love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, 
and service is its prayer, to dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Please remain standing for the doxology. share with you a story called Martin's Big Words by Doreen Rappaport, illustrated by Brian Collier, and published by Little Brown and Company. Everywhere in Martin's hometown, he saw signs, whites only. His mother said these signs were in all southern cities and towns in the United States. Every time Martin reads these words, he feels bad, and he remembers what his mother tells him. You are as good as anyone. In church, Martin sang hymns, he read from the Bible, he listened to his father preach. These words made him feel good. When I grow up, I'm going to get big words too. Martin grew up, he became a minister like his father, and he used the big words he had heard as a child from his parents and from the Bible. Everyone can be great. He studied the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi and learned how the Indian nation won freedom without ever firing a gun. Martin said love when others said hate. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He said together when others said separate. He said peace when others said war. Sooner or later, all the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together. In 1995, on a cold December day in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks was coming home from work. A white man told her to get up from her seat on the bus so he could sit. She said no and was arrested. Montgomery black citizens learned of her arrest. It made them angry. They decided not to ride the buses until they could sit anywhere they wanted. So for 381 days, they walked to work and school and church. They walked in rain and cold and blistering heat. Martin walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them until the white city leaders had to agree they could sit anywhere they wanted. When the history books are written, someone will say there lived black people who had the courage to stand up for their rights. In the next 10 years, black Americans all over the South protested for equal rights. Martin walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them. White ministers told them to stop. Mayors and governors, police chiefs and judges ordered them to stop, but they kept marching. Wait. For years I've heard that word. Wait. We have waited more than 340 years for our rights. They were jailed and beaten and murdered, but they kept on marching. Some black Americans wanted to fight back with their fists. Martin convinced them not to by reminding them of the power of love. Love is the key to the problem of the world. Many white Southerners hated and feared Martin's words. A few threatened to kill him and his family. His house was bombed. His brother's house was bombed. But he refused to stop. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not be stopped because God is with them, this movement. The marches continued. More and more Americans listened to Martin's words. He shared his dreams and filled them with hope. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. After 10 years of protests, the lawmakers in Washington voted to end segregation. The white-only signs in the South came down. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I would like to add Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., cared about all Americans. He cared about people all over the world, and people all over the world admired him. In 1964, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He won it because he taught others to fight with words, not fists. Martin went everywhere or wherever people needed help. 
1968, he went to Memphis, Tennessee. He went to help garbage collectors who were on strike. He walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them. On his second day there, he was shot and he was killed. His big words are alive for us today. And that is our story for today. Our elementary RE kids have a choice this morning. They are welcome to stay in the worship with their families, or they can head out to the lobby where we're going to go outside and join a snow day. If you would bless us all out with song and those gathering us here and afar with may peace surround you. having a community-focused collection, and the recipient of this will be um, the, the Patriot Canines of Wisconsin, represented today by Lonnie Rethaber. Um, my understanding is that Lonnie, and I'm not sure of your dog's name, will be available in the atrium after the service, so um, feel free to approach Lonnie, but of course, I'm, I'm giving this caveat to be um, cautious and to not pet your dog, I'm guessing, but to ask Lonnie questions directly. So at this time, um, we will not be passing the plate directly, but at the back of the sanctuary, there is a basket where you can place your offering for the Patriot Canines of Wisconsin. And if you are so inclined to, on a regular basis, offer an offering to our church, you can check our website, uuwasa.org to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. I'm speaking. <laughs> Thank you all for having me. I'm, my name is Lonnie. I'm the executive director of Patriot Canines of Wisconsin, and this is Asa with me. She is a 10-month-old German Shepherd in training to be our mascot. She will not be being placed as a service dog, but we'll be going through all the training as a service dog would. Um, she still has another year and two months of training to go through. And this is her first time in a church, so thank you for allowing us to be here. Um, what we do, um, my, our mission statement is to provide training and education to both veterans and service members and service dog candidates together to create the highest quality service dog team at no cost to disabled veterans and active duty members impacted by military-related post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, and military sexual trauma. Um, our goal is helping veterans win the war against suicide, depression, and anxiety by empowering them with the use of a service dog. Veterans learn to train and care for their own service dog and regain independence in civilian life and a sense of self-mastery. Um, we're located right here in Wausau on Stewart Avenue in the West Side Industrial Park, um, 733 Stewart Avenue. Um, we started in 2017 on Grand Avenue um, as a 100% volunteer organization. Um, it quickly grew. Um, and we moved to our new location. We've been there since the summer of 2019. I am the first paid employee. Um, we've graduated 50 K-19 since conception, and we have 26 dogs in training currently. Um, our classes are Monday through Friday, um, and we also have specialty classes in the evenings for our veterans. Um, we also have puppy raisers that raise our puppies for the first year and then we pass them on to a, a veteran and they're trained together. Um, we are the community model, um, not the national model of service dog training where we train the candidate, per, the person, and the dog together. Um, 
Why do I do this? Everybody asks me why I do this. I am a veteran as well of the Marine Corps and the Army. I've lost two friends to veteran suicide. I've been in dog training for almost 15 years now. Um, I left my career as an operations manager of a trucking company to come and help my brothers and sisters. Um, I felt the calling um, and the need. The need is very great. Um, we try to graduate 22 dog teams a year. We have 40 applicants currently since the, since the middle of December. So there, there's a huge need out there. The VA and the Department of Defense, everybody's getting be, behind psychiatric service dogs now. Um, so I, I believe we're here to stay. <laughs> um, um, I'd like to thank you all for having me here. And if I could leave you with one bit of knowledge, as I, and this is my goal for 2022, is to teach the communities about this. My question is, how do you interact with a service dog? And my answer is, you don't. Um, our biggest issue with our veterans getting back out into, the, into society is having people question them why they have a service dog. They don't look disabled. Um, and people question them and want to pet their service dogs, and it cre creates a lot of anxiety. So we like to teach everybody, just don't interact with a service dog. Ignore it like it's not even there. You wouldn't recognize somebody's wheelchair or anything like that. So just don't recognize that the service dog is even there. Don't even interact. And with that, thank you all for having us here today. I appreciate your support, and thank you for um, your interest in veterans' issues. to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. As we move into prayer, I invite you to center yourself. You can start by putting both feet flat, firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray with your eyes closed, you're welcome to close them. Start with an awareness of your body. Feel the air on the top of your head. Try and relax your jaw and your shoulders. Take a breath into your stomach and slowly out. Let us pray. Great healing artist of love, it seems that joy is always mixed with pain. When we forget to hope, these burdens threaten to immobilize us, to isolate us, cut us off from one another in the holy. And yet we know because your presence has been real for us, we know that all of creation is connected, every stone and grain of sand, every drop of rain and muddy flood crest, every frightened child, all the sick and broken, and those who have forgotten where they came from. 
All of creation is firmly cradled in the healing warmth of love's embrace. O faithful, liberating artist of new beginnings, we pray for those in need of healing and reconciliation. We pray for those cut off from community by violence, hatred, racism, and oppression. We pray for children and for their hopes and dreams. Now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 169, We Shall Overcome. I chose this reading from the prophet Isaiah this morning because this section of the prophet features prominently in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. The prophet says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand 
double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Therein ends our reading. I think it's a bitter irony that just a few days before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which we recognize this morning, that the Times ran a column entitled, America is Falling Apart at the Seams. And that the columnist David Brooks moves quickly through terrifying data. I'll summarize. 
Traffic deaths are up even though travel is down. Murder rates are surging in the nation's cities. Drug overdoses are on the rise. Alcohol sales are through the roof. Nurses assaulted by patients, flight attendants assaulted by passengers, schools are increasingly reporting minor incidents like backtalking alongside major incidents like fights and gun possession. High rates of depression and suicide and loneliness. Hate crimes at the highest level in 12 years. Gun purchases are record-breaking with more than 2 million firearms bought in January 2021 alone. And political polarization from City Hall to the White House. And just the other day, I saw that there was research published in the journal Psychological Science that suggests the United States has become a nation of narcissists. And the final nail, religious and civic engagement is at an all-time low, while political zeal is at an all-time high. Now, in an unrelated article on a similar topic, David French offers this. I'm going to quote him. Could I suggest that as religious and civic engagement declines, too many Americans are replacing religion with politics, and the false god of politics does not present the answer for what ails this hurting nation? So before we talk about what ails us, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting politics does not matter. Politics matter. Justice matters, and our political institutions should operate in ways that ensure an opportunity to flourish for everybody. People deserve to live in a safe society with options and opportunity. And I expect, knowing this congregation as well as I do, that everybody agrees with all those points that I just made. But what I'm focusing on, though, is how our political engagements often mean less to us than our personal and our spiritual ones, but we behave as though politics matters more. To prove my point, I'm going to ask you some rhetorical questions. So ask yourself this this morning. What impacts my day more than anything else? So what impacts my day? Here are a few experiments. Who impacts your day more, the Speaker of the House or the people who live in your house? Who impacts your day more, the Education Secretary or the Secretary at your kid's school? What impacts your day more, Chuck Schumer or Chuck the Sanitation Worker? I think we all know the answer to these questions, and we know this, and yet we behave as though the opposite is true. And there's an understandable reason why we obsess about politics in my mind. I think we do this because it's easy. It's easy to complain. It's easy to virtue signal and rant. It's easy to point out other people's privilege. But what's not easy is living a virtuous life. What's not easy is making a marriage. What's not easy is practicing what you preach. There's a French poet named Charles Pigouy, and he wrote this, everything begins in mysticism and it ends in politics. What I find in these words is a starting point for how faith and politics are meant to relate. And I'm indebted to my friend Wes Granberg, who pointed out that the issue with many people of faith is that we actually get this backwards, which is to say that we start with politics and then we try to figure out how our religion fits in. And any time we think our politics and religion are one and the same, we would be wise to remind ourselves that the Sermon on the Mount and the Noble Eightfold Path, they weren't designed as election strategies. They are teachings that show us how to integrate the inner journey with the outer one. Further, as Father Richard Rohr observed, the present, the present culture of angry partisan politics that exist on the left and the right is far more effective at making us feel morally superior than it is at changing anyone's mind. So a pastor friend of mine, he likes to remind me, he says, Brian, good people of faith should make bad political allies. And he's right. 
Our faith calls us to a moral standard that exceeds that of any political orientation. But if politics aren't enough, then the obvious question we're left with is what is? I think a goodly portion of today's loneliness epidemic stems from a lack of hope in the sense that we don't see ourselves as part of a story that includes others. The stories we tell are often quite narcissistic and selfish. There's a lot of I and very little we. There's a lot of you and very little us. And it's worth lingering here so we can ask ourselves, where does my vision of life Where does it come from? What story do I see myself part of? The faith we practice takes it as a given that our lives are wrapped up with everyone else's. Our faith tells us to love our neighbors as well or even better than we love ourselves. And in an era so ripe with hate speech, we'd be wise to recall the words of St. Paul who said this in his letter to the Hebrews. Do not Neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I'm always on the lookout for new ways to convey ancient wisdom, and this past week I stumbled on Naomi Shihab Nye's poem, Kindness. I'm going to quote the middle section of that poem for you now. The poet writes, Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness... You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must learn to see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Nye's modern poem contains ancient wisdom that says the door to the laboratory of change, that door opens in all of us. It opens in our minds, it opens in our hearts, and in the cells of our body. More often than any of us would choose, we are powerless when we are faced with all that's wrong in the world. But the words of the prophets tell us over and again when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. This morning we heard a section from the prophet Isaiah that Martin Luther King Jr. quoted in his I Have a Dream speech. In it, Isaiah tells us that glory and justice are universal. They're for everyone. The message of the prophets from Isaiah to Amos, from Martin Luther King to Nelson Mandela, are this. Lust, power, and riches must yield to love, justice, and righteousness. And our faith, ultimately, is a story of hope. And it is with this faith to use Dr. King's own words, that we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. Now, one of my favorite stories about Dr. King begins just shortly after he finished graduate school at Boston University. He was called to minister to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, But privately, Dr. King says in his journals that he imagined making the move from the pulpit into the classroom as a college professor. And it turns out that Dr. King wasn't always a political activist, and history proves that after Rosa Parks' arrest sparked the Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. King was initially very wary of endorsing it because he's worried about its legality and ultimately its ethical implications. But local religious leaders, they thrust Dr. King into the debate, and they asked him to deliver a sermon in the hours immediately after Parks was arrested. And so in Dr. King's private writings, he says that he got in his car, he rushed home to write a sermon in a couple hours' time, but instead he had a panic attack. But somewhere between the car ride between his house and the Holt Street Baptist Church, Dr. King had a moment of moral clarity that led him to preach his first political sermon and inspire his desire to lead a nationwide justice movement until his death 12 years later. So after publicly questioning the Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. King 
went on to say in his sermon that it is not wrong to challenge the status quo because of what the boycotters were doing, then the Supreme Court of the United States was wrong. And if they were wrong, then the Constitution was wrong. And if they were wrong, then justice is a lie. And if all of that was wrong, Dr. King said, then God is wrong. Then he went on to assure the congregation that justice is not a lie because love has no meaning. Love is an action. It's an expression that in this case took on the form of a struggle that would endure until the prophet Amos's words came true, when justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. King's faith in the prophet's words endured even while he was spat on, when he was thrown in jail, when his house was bombed, and when he was beaten and publicly shamed. And he was able to do all of this because first he was brave enough to ask, what story am I going to be part of? How many elected officials ask themselves that question? How many of us ask that question? The late Peter Gomes once said that even though we never met him, Dr. King made the Reverend Peter Gomes uncomfortable. Gomes was uncomfortable because for him, people who possess moral power and spiritual rigor and physical courage made him feel inadequate by comparison. And Gomes said the same thing about Mother Teresa, who he did meet one day on Harvard Yard. Now, I freely admit that like Gomes, I feel inadequate when I imagine standing next to Dr. King or Mother Teresa. But this is precisely why we honor him. We honor Dr. King because he bravely rose from among us, and upon seeing things as they are, he showed us how they ought to be. But Dr. King is a hero and a prophet because his words and his witness pointed our hearts and minds beyond what is and what's been to the promise that all people, women and men, black and white, rich and poor, sick and broken, are meant to live together. It is said that true prophets speak to us in a way that gives our dreams some disturbance, and then it gives dreamers to disturb our waking. Removing religion from politics is not only impossible, it is foolish. But my hope in the days ahead is that our political witness will be guided by the highest values of our moral and spiritual tradition, and it will be based on our universalist ancestors' belief in mutual love and respect above all other virtues. In every era, people of faith have been tested. Will we give in to despair? Will we stand by as the seams that hold us together slowly fall apart? Or as Dr. King said, will we be guided by the light of our faith that has the power to transform the discords of our nation into a symphony of fellowship? Amen. You're welcome to rise now in spirit or body for our closing hymn, number 149, Lift Every Voice and Sing.
you came here with someone this morning, you're welcome to take their hand. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you soon.